One of the exciting things about archaeology is that you can not only see that the events described in the Bible actually took place, but you can also tangibly feel and see and experience for yourself in a three-dimensional way objects and, and the everyday life things that, 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 that people experience day by day. You know, the Bible talks a lot about God's acts in history, but it doesn't always describe the specifics of how people lived, how they worshipped. There may be gods named, there may be temples talked about, but how were the temples designed? We know how the temple in Jerusalem was designed, a very active description. But what about the temples of the Canaanites? What about the temple of Dagon? What about these ancient worship practices? And so there are big questions sometimes that can be answered because archaeology gives us tangible answers to the kinds of cooking pots that people used, everyday implements, what kind of houses they lived in, who they traded with, what they traded, and what their economic system was like. And to me that's very exciting because it, it puts us in touch with the past and uh, in a way that, well, I think most of us like to see evidence. We've grown up in a media-driven culture where to touch and to taste and to feel and to see, in particular to hear, are all uh, elements that we like to, uh, to experience the world of the Bible with. And what I often tell people as we take tours to the Middle East, as we uh, go on excavations with students from Southern Adventist University and, and others as well, community people can be involved too, is that when you take these trips, the Bible comes to life in a way that it hasn't been alive before. You never read the Bible the same again. I was at ASI just a few uh, weeks ago, and uh, during the Sabbath service, Sean Boonstra was speaking, and a lady who had just been with me uh, to, to Turkey this past summer leaned to me and said, I will never read the book of Acts the same again. Think about it. You've walked in Ephesus, you've walked in Laodicea, you've walked in the places that Paul and the early missionaries went out to. You visit Jerusalem and you now see the relationship between the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane and you suddenly, those places are real places. They're not simply something you read about and that you've imagined in your own mind. So archaeology makes things tangible but it also makes things real. Sometimes it's a little disappointing because we imagine things that we think are a certain way and then we get there, you know, it's, that's why a book is always more interesting to read than watching the movie afterwards, right? Because we've imagined it a certain way and when we see the movie it's always a disappointment because it's not the way we've imagined it. I remember the first time I took some students across a boat on the Sea of Galilee and uh, afterwards I asked them and some of them were absolutely blown away by the experience. We actually stopped and turned off the engine in the middle of the sea and we cast in a net like Peter would have done years earlier when Jesus asked him to do so. And I breathed a sigh of relief when no fish came up in the net. And uh, anyway, uh, you know, we, we experienced those things and it was incredible to be out on that calm sea. But afterwards, one of the students said, it's so small 
compared to what I imagined. You know, and I have to admit that I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I grew up on Lake Michigan. That's a lake, you know, 45 miles across. I only saw the other side once. I saw some skyscrapers from the top of a dune one time from Chicago, only once in my life, and I grew up there my entire life. So, so you have all kinds of imaginings of what things are like. Archaeology makes it tangible and real. And one of the things that it does is it makes the ancient deities that the Bible describes real as well. I'd like to read with you. Today we're going to talk about the gods and goddesses of ancient Israel, ancient religion in Israel. And as we do that, let's look at what the Bible uh, says. In the Old Testament, there are over 200 occurrences of 12 terms describing cultic images. Were the Israelites supposed to worship these images? No. No. In addition, Asherah or Asherim are mentioned another 40 times. We're going to talk about Asherah today. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that deity, but she's mentioned the Bible 40 times. Okay? We'll talk about her. Um, indicating that the writers and the prophets had a major issue at hand. If something's mentioned in the Bible and condemned enough in the Bible, you know it was a problem, right? It wouldn't need to be condemned unless it was a problem. Just like uh, parents, if they have to say something over and over again, it's a problem, right? You wouldn't have to say anything if it wasn't a problem. Asherah was a goddess known from Ugarit. Some scholars say was an Asherah herself, but Asherah in the Bible could also refer to a wooden pole or image. In fact, in some translations, most of the time when Asherah occurs in the Hebrew, it's simply translated as pole or wooden pole, or something like that, or tree, okay? So it can mean either a goddess itself or a wooden pole, perhaps representing that goddess. Here in Deuteronomy 7, the Israelites are told specifically not to worship the gods of Canaan, but thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars. What is Deuteronomy, by the way? It's the message of Moses of God through Moses to the people of Israel just before they were what? To enter the promised land, right? So this is his last message before his death. And this is what God says to the Israelites. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim. Im, by the way, is like an S at the end of a word. It's the plural in Hebrew, okay? And burn down their graven images with fire, for you are a what? A holy people, a people set aside to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Israel, of course, was not supposed to be exclusivistic. They were supposed to be a light to the rest of the nations, right? And share with them what God has shown them. In Deuteronomy 16, so in this particular passage, Asherah is a kind of something that can be hewn down. Are trees hewn down? Are poles hewn down? Yeah, okay. Here in this particular uh, chapter in 16, you shall not plant for yourself an Asherah. Okay, have you ever planted an image of a god and has it grow? Okay, so here again, it's referred to as a, as a kind of a tree. You shall not plant for yourself an Asherah of any kind of what? Tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. 
So no tree dedicated to Asherah should be planted next to an altar intended for whom? The Lord, according to Deuteronomy 16. Judges chapter 6, we're just going to look at a few of these. Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal. Now, I always cringe a little bit when I hear it now. It's really Baal in Hebrew, uh, but that's okay. We know it as Baal, which what? Belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah that is where? Beside it. So in this text in Judges, Baal and Asherah were associated with each other. And where on the one hand the altar of Baal was there, also an Asherah was, they were told to cut down the Asherah that was beside it. Perhaps that was a tree. By the way, uh, the Israelites liked, uh, the Canaanites liked to worship on hilltops in high places, right? And in groves. Sometimes Asherah is also translated as groves. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. Notice that. God's worship happens how? In an orderly manner. And take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. What good is the wood of the Asherah? It's simply good to burn and to have as fuel. Okay, and we will read another passage in Isaiah that talks about that as well. 1 Kings 15, verse 13. This is talking now about the kings. And he also removed Maacah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made what? A horrid image as an Asherah. And Asa cut down her horrid image and what? Burned it in the Kidron in the, at the Brook Kidron. That's the valley, of course, right surrounding Jerusalem on the east side. 1 Kings 18, verse 19. Ah, this is a famous story. Remember what Elijah was faced with during his days? The worship of Jezebel. Notice what it says. Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal. And we usually stop there. I've read the story to my kids hundreds of times. It's one of their favorite stories. The fire of the Lord coming down and consuming everything. But how often do we hear about the 400 prophets of Asherah in the same context? Not only did Jezebel have prophets to Baal, she had 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. What happened to those prophets? They were killed, right, after this event. But the climax of the worship of Asherah doesn't happen in Ahab's and Jezebel's time, doesn't happen earlier in Asa's time, doesn't happen all the way back. It happens with the reign of Manasseh, one of the wickedest kings that ever lived in Jerusalem. Notice what it says in 2 Kings chapter 21. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, who did we just talk about in the previous presentation? Maybe some of you weren't here. We talked about Hezekiah, right? All right, Hezekiah had enacted a reform, but now something else is happening. He erected altars for Baal, this is the king, and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. This is Manasseh, the king of Judah. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made 
in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in all Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, what? I will put my name forever. How many names were supposed to be in the temple? One, the God of heaven. But now there was an Asherah, and now there was all the hosts of heaven, and there were all kinds of other things taking place as well. To me, this is fascinating in a real way. What happens following that? In the reign of Josiah, another reformer, the successor to Manasseh and Ammon, Josiah brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were where? In the house of the Lord where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. Now, by the way, hangings for the Asherah. I was living in Cyprus a few years ago, and I went to the top mountain, top of the mountain, where there the founder of the modern country of Cyprus is buried, Macarius, a bishop, a Greek Orthodox bishop, Macarius. And there, on top of the mountain, not very far away from his tomb, which has become kind of an altar for the Cypriot people, there was a tree, a beautiful tree, covered with hangings, covered with prayers that had been tied to the branches of the tree. That still happens in India. It happens in various countries around the world, and it happened in ancient Israel as well. Okay? Hangings for the Asherah. So what are our biblical characteristics so far that we've seen from Scripture? It's a carved image. There's also carved images to Asherah. In other words, it's not an Asherah itself. It's to Asherah. Uh, the Bible instructs these to be cut down. There was one even placed by Manasseh in the temple in Jerusalem. It was removed later from the temple by Josiah and ground up to powder and placed on the graves of the common people. Asherah was a major problem in the history of Israel, particularly at the time of Manasseh and Ammon and the time of Ahab and Jezebel. So who was this Asherah? How, what do we know about her outside of the Bible? Let's look now at extra-biblical evidence for her. We go to the city of Ugarit in Syria. Ras Shamra is its name in Arabic. Ugarit or Ugarit in uh, the ancient texts here in this famous city, cuneiform tablets were found, a whole library in fact, that documented the Canaanite pantheon of gods that Baal and Asherah belonged to. Here we see that there were several gods. Ael in Ugarit was the supreme god or deity. Now I have to say something here. Ael is also a word that we know from the Bible, right? Elohim. Ale is God. Now, don't confuse ale in the Bible with ale here. Let me explain it to you in English for a moment. Ale is the Semitic name for God, period. Just like G-O-D is the English name for a deity, right? When it's uppercase, we as Christians assume that it is the God of heaven. By the way, it isn't always. You have to check things out and check out people's definitions of that, right? 
But when it's uppercase, we think of the God of heaven. When it's lowercase and we say the gods of the Hindus, are we talking about the same God? No, but are we losing the, using the same word? Yes, okay? So God is in English, in German, in many other languages, just the generic name for what? Deity. And that's the same thing in the Semitic language. El is the generic term for God, for deity. So when El here is the supreme God, it simply says that God is the supreme God. And we would refer to this particular El probably with the lowercase g because it's not the same thing that we know. He's the supreme God. Interestingly, there are some characteristics here that mirror what the God of Israel is like as well. He's the father of mankind. Could that be the description of the God of heaven as well? Is he not the creator God? He's the creator of creatures. Is our God, the God of the Bible, not the creator God? Yes. Is our God a bull? No. Okay, that's where the distinction comes in. And uh, here we have him also, often referred to as the bull. Notice what Frank Moore Cross, longtime professor at Harvard University, wrote in his book, Canaanite Myth and Hebrew Epic. Ale frequently plays the role of God of the Father, the social deity who governs the tribe or league, often bound to the league with kinship or covenant ties. So here we have this image from Ugarit that many believe is a depiction of Ale. So that's the primary deity of the pantheon. Just like uh, in Greek mythology, who is the primary deity of the pantheon? Zeus, right? So we have a primary deity of the pantheon in Canaanite culture much earlier. And here is the way he is depicted sometimes, as a bull. Okay, this is again, this is from uh, the Louvre in Paris. And uh, they, of course, have been excavating Ras Shamra for many years. What about Baal? You ever wondered what Baal looked like or who he really was? Here he is. Isn't that great? By the way, this image is only about six inches tall. Okay, so if you think this is some big opposing image, he get, basically fits into your pocket. Okay. Um, this is, who was Baal in antiquity? He was the son of Ale. Again, we're talking about a pantheon, deities that are related to each other, born from each other, and so forth. He's the son of Ale. He is the principal deity of Ugarit. He's like the patron god of the city. He's a storm god of rain and thunder. Now does it make a little more sense what Elijah was doing up there on Mount Carmel? What was the competition about? Rain. Was Baal going to give rain, or was the god of heaven going to give rain? He was the deity of rain and thunder. Here he is standing, often in his upraised hand, he is holding a lightning bolt because that's what happens in thunderstorms when it rains, right? So that's Baal in Ugarit. And here he is in another stance, also from the Louvre, uh, found in Ugarit. Here is Baal standing. Again, what is he holding in his hand? A, 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 a plant because he makes plants grow. And again, raised overhead something else. Now, I, I dug with Harvard University at Ashkelon primarily because of this find. It was found the year before I dug there. And I have to say, the year that I was there, nothing as spectacular was found. It always happens that way. It's kind of Murphy's Law in archaeology. Um, one season, I worked at one site in Jordan, and I found nothing the entire six weeks that I was there. It, it happens sometimes. You can see the beautiful Mediterranean Sea that we're working next to here this ancient Canaanite, later Philistine city. 
but right outside the gate area of the city, one of the oldest gates ever excavated in Israel, this shrine was found. Now, what you're looking at it and you're saying, that's a shrine? What's going on here? It looks like an ancient pot, doesn't it? Looks like an ancient vessel. It is an ancient vessel, but it's got a door cut into it. You see the door here? That's not broken. This part over here is broken, but this is a door. And, and right next to or coming out of that door was this deity. And it made the covers of newspapers around the world and Time magazine and everything. I'm not sure about Time, but newspapers around the world hailed this as the golden calf found in Israel. You can imagine that caught people's attention, right? <laughs> the problem was it wasn't golden. It was lead covered with silver. And uh, anyway, and it was, it was a calf, though, probably one of these... Uh, uh, deities again, and it was right outside the city gate, just where the Bible describes these deities often were kept. What about Asherah? We come now to Asherah. We've talked about Ale, we've talked about Baal, we're going to talk a little bit about Asherah. Asherah, we're not going to talk about all these deities, we're going to focus mostly on Asherah here. Asherah was the consort or the wife of Ale. Let me ask you a question. In the, in the Bible, did, uh, did Elohim, did the Hebrew God, have a wife? No. Did he have offspring? No. If, 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 if Asherah was the wife of Baal, I'm, I'm sorry, the wife of Ale, she was also the mother of Baal. Exactly. She was the mother of Baal. So here we have her. She's a nude female figure in full face. She has this Hathor-like headdress. Those of you who were here when I talked about Egypt earlier, remember Hathor. And remember that she had those ears of cows. You remember that? And then the, the headdress. We're going to see some images here in a moment again. She's holding in either hand. What is she holding here by the legs? A goat. A goat on either side with horns and everything. And there are serpents on either side of her. Do you see them? There are serpents here. So she's got... She's holding goats. She's got serpents on either side of her. And she's standing on a... Lion. Now we're going to come to all, back to all of those motifs in a moment because they are very significant. This was, the, this was a plaque that was found at Ugarit depicting Asherah. Okay? But we're going to see that these motifs find their way uh, to Egypt or actually come from Egypt and that this goddess is known by different names all around uh, the, the territory. Okay? So, but that's how she looks at, at Ugarit, the wife of Ale. Here she is from Egypt. And I'm going to change this real quick so that we can see an artist's depiction. It's a little bit clearer here. She is again in this scene from Egypt now, standing on what? A lion. Okay? And uh, she's primarily nude again, but she's got this Hathor headdress again. And in this case, she's holding, well, this is the artist's interpretation of this. Um, some artists think that these are serpents that she's holding on this side of her hand because it's not as clear. These are definitely lotus flowers. Uh, but at any rate, this is what W.F. Albright, the famed American biblical archaeologist from Johns Hopkins, said many years ago. One of Asherah's most common appellations or associations was holiness. And she's known here in Egypt as Kudshu, which in Canaanite means holy. What did the angels sing? What did the seraphim sing on either side of the throne of God when Isaiah had his vision? 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh is what it says in Hebrew. So it's the same word, only from Canaanite. And if we go to the ancient temple of Deir el-Bari in the southern part of Egypt, where Hatshepsut built this magnificent palace that we talked about earlier today, we go to the temple of Hathor, and there, remember what we saw? We saw, there she is. She's got that Hathor headdress again. She has ears of a cow because she is the cow goddess. And she also is worshipped as a cow. She is the mother of the king because the king is a divine offspring. Here's the mother, here's the mother of the king, the cow now, with the solar uh, emblem here between her horns. This is Ra, the sun god with Amun leading her, the god of Thebes, the father god, and here is Hatshepsut, the young princess, being suckled by Hathor, the cow goddess. Why? Because Hathor is not only the goddess who gives birth, she is also a goddess of fertility and so forth. So all of these things are encapsulated together. Basically what this image is saying is that Hatshepsut is the offspring of Hathor and Amun, a divine uh, birth scene that legitimizes her role as the female king of Egypt. And so we move from here, we're, we're in this room right here. This is, this is the right behind here, a little ways away. Isn't that cool how that moved? I don't like how that works. Anyway, just a little ways away in the old temple uh, the temple that Thutmose III erected afterwards, we have another image. This is in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Here is Hathor emerging from her shrine, which was built in Thutmose III's temple right next to Hatshepsut's temple. He was, of course, the successor. And here you have the king himself with the goddess Hathor pushing behind him, basically legitimizing the king as he's moving forward to reign over Egypt. Okay, the goddess is, is there protecting him and pushing him forward, and that's depicted in several different ways. Now, when you walk up to Thutmose III's tomb in the Valley of the Kings, as I did a few years ago when we took a study tour there, uh, you can see uh, several intriguing images in the king's tomb. We saw a few moments ago this afternoon in the first presentation, we saw the serpent motif and how valuable the serpent motif was or how important it was in ancient Egypt. But as you go down into the king's chamber, you see another important uh, emblem in the king's chamber. There's the serpent leading the king into the afterlife. But notice this image. Isn't that strange? Here we have King, and here we know it's King Thutmose III because that's his name right here in the cartouche. Here we have the king holding on to a branch or the arm of a tree and doing the same thing Hatshepsut did earlier, only from the cow goddess Hathor. He is suckling from the tree. Now, this is fascinating because what does the Bible describe Asherah as many times? A tree, right? And here the king, Thutmose III, is receiving uh, nourishment from this tree who is known also as Asherah. There are other scenes from the 18th dynasty. Here is the, the, the tree again pouring out nourishment for the deceased 
In this case, in this tomb painting, notice the uh, tree goddess coming out of the tree. Um, here is another image. You see this? The tree goddess again coming out of her uh, place there. She's the trunk, if you will, and, and her arm is a branch, and she's receiving, the, the woman here is receiving nourishment uh, from this. Here is another image. These are all different images from various tomb paintings in Egypt. This time she's giving food. Okay? So we have here a very clear connection between the tree and between, uh, between uh, Nurture and, and, and Hathor. And here is another image. This is a Canaanite image of Asherah. Notice what's happening here. Two goats on either side. Do those, remember we saw that a moment ago? Did we see two goats being held by Asherah? Here are two goats again on either side. She is feeding the two goats because she is the tree. And she's holding the plants to the goats so that they can feed from the tree. And if you ever travel in the Middle East, you see a lot of goats. And this is a very familiar scene as the goats stretch themselves up to the tree to eat from its branches. Okay, this is a very common thing that you see there. But this is the goddess. And she's standing on something down here that's not very clear. Okay, but she's standing on something down below. So here we have in Egypt the connection between a mother goddess, a tree, nurture, nourishment, all of those things. And now we travel to the territory of Palestine again. Let's go back to Palestine. In the southern part of Palestine, at a place called Quintilat Ajrud, we found large storage jars with paintings on the outside. And these paintings are interesting because of the inscription up here. This is an inscription that says something. And then the images down below. What are the first things that you notice from what we've just talked about a moment ago? Do you see the lion here? Who was standing on the lion before? Asherah or Kudshu, right? And there she is. Only this time she's depicted as what? A tree. Does that make sense? Because we see that sometimes she's a tree and sometimes she's a woman. And who's eating from the tree? Goats again, just like we've seen in several other images, both from Ugarit, from Egypt, and now from Canaan. And then we have... Some other images over here. We have a woman seated on a throne. Some say this is a lion throne with paw, um, uh, paws for the, for the feet of the throne here down below, playing a harp. Uh, this appears to be a woman because of the long hair. And then these strange figures over here, but the inscription is what is intriguing. And a lot has been made out of this over the years. Notice what it says. And there's different types of interpretations that have been given to this inscription. One interpretation is that the inscription says, by Yahweh and by his Asherah, indicating that Asherah is a pole or image, not an actual goddess. And the other interpretation by some scholars is that it is by Yahweh and his Asherah, indicating that this is some kind of a, a goddess. Now we look at that and we know right away instinctively from the Bible what? Did Yahweh have a wife? No. But were there times in biblical history where Asherah was placed where only Yahweh should have been? Yes. 
And it may have been that in parts of Israel, and this is an oasis way down in the desert, far away from the center of Jerusalem, it may have been that Asherah here was somehow put together with Yahweh worship. In fact, we have evidence, indirect evidence, very indirect evidence of this elsewhere as well. Ta'anach, this is a cult stand from Ta'anach. And uh, Ta'anach is a site located north of Jerusalem. Notice the images on this cult stand. Here we have two lions. And in the middle of them is a sacred, is a tree again. You see the tree? What are the lions usually associated with? With Asherah, right? They're standing on the lion, or Asherah is standing on the lion. Here are two lions. There's a sacred tree in the middle. There are goats eating from the tree on either side. And then you go down here, and here you have two lions again, but now you have a woman standing between the lions, and notice what the woman is doing. She's holding the lions by his ears. You see that? Well, here it's not very clear. Here it's, here it's clearer usually when you look at this. This is an artist drawing from the side. Um, what does that mean? Have you ever been held by your ears? Is it a pleasant thing? Is it uh, something that has happened when you were in trouble or something? My parents never, you know, led me around by the ears. I was in Brazil a few years ago, and they were giving bull rides. Have you ever ridden a bull before? I mean, I've seen it at rodeos. My dad used to love rodeos, and when we'd go out west, we'd always have to see the rodeos. But um, they, they had a bull there, and just like horse rides, they were giving bull rides. And my daughters wanted to try it. I said, is it safe? He says, look at what is in the nose, and in the nose there was a large ring that the bull was being led by. He says, all I have to do is pull just a little bit. You know how painful that is for the bull? He'll do exactly what I want him to do. So perhaps this is an image of Asherah, who is controlling the lion so that the lion does exactly. And who was the lion? The king of beasts, right? King of animals. So that she will be dominant over him. We go to another location. This is the city of Arad, in uh, the southern part of Israel. Excavations took place there in the 1960s and they uncovered a huge fortress dating to the time of Hezekiah and Josiah. Hezekiah, of course, was the reformer king and so was Josiah a couple generations later. But notice what happens here. We have a temple. This is the holy place and this is the most holy place. The holy place has an altar in it and as we move to the most holy place here, we have a, several stairs leading up to another area, and I'm going to close in on that now. There are two altars. They're not very big. They're only about this tall. The smallest one is about this tall and about this wide. Certainly not for an animal sacrifice, but it certainly was used for incense. We know because there were residues left on those altars that were analyzed in labs, and we know that they were used for incense. These are replicas that are there now. The originals are in the Israel Museum. And behind these altars are what? Standing stones. Does the Bible ever talk about standing stones? Absolutely. It talks about high places and standing stones. And standing stones were often on these high places together with altars. Kind of reminds us a little bit of Stonehenge, but it's very, very different. They usually don't have inscriptions on them. Sometimes they do. The one at Chatzor, there was a whole temple found with these standing stones and several altars. And one of the standing stones had two upraised arms with a sun disk and a moon. Guess what was happening there? What was being worshipped? 
So here we have two standing stones. One is taller than the other, and one altar is taller than the other. And some scholars have extrapolated the Kuntilat Ajrud inscriptions found miles and miles away and have said, this may be Yahweh and his Asherah. We don't know that for sure. That's conjecture. Okay? That, we don't know that for sure. But what is for sure is what? How many altars are there? Two. How many standing stones, which usually represented deities, are there? Two. How many deities should have been worshipped in ancient Israel? One. So there's, whoever it is, it's a problem, right? And here it is, there. This was completely destroyed. And it was destroyed right at the time and right at the date of the, um, of the time of Josiah, the reformer. And that's important because as we see, as we move on, uh, from the standing stones in the Arad Sanctuary, we'll see that uh, that's significant to other things. So the two incense altars and the two standing stones there in the most holy place of the sanctuary in Arad. We come now to the most intriguing thing, perhaps in terms of images. These are figurines that are found all over the ancient country of Israel. And just recently, last year in February, we had an opening at our museum here on campus where we had for the first time on display at our museum and on our campus one of these figurines. We've received one on loan and uh, we have one uh, here on loan as part of our collection now. Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, the museum is not open right now. We wish it could be. Uh, tomorrow afternoon normally it would be and, and during the week as well, but we're in the middle of installing a brand new exhibit and so we invite you to come October 8 to see uh, the, our, our new exhibit on coins of the biblical world and particularly Greco-Roman coins. We'll have all the coins of the early emperors as well as Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great and others and the coins of the Bible that are mentioned there as well. That's a special new exhibit that we're opening up in just a few weeks. But, but this particular image is quite disturbing because obviously it is a female figurine some have analyzed the trunks as, or the, the stands as simply being functional so that the figurine can stand up. Others have noted the similarity to a tree trunk. And some have equated it because of that. Again, when you're an art historian, you, you, you kind of you know, uh, have to uh, think about these things. Most of the th time, uh, none of the times do we have inscriptions on this that say, I am Asherah. We don't have that. So these have been interpreted in all kinds of different ways. Uh, Alan Millard from the University of Liverpool said they may as well have been toys. I'm not so sure. He's a good friend, and I respect him a great deal, but um, I'm not so sure about that. Not the context in which they are usually found, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Fowler in 1985 says we can't know what they were because there's no inscriptions with them. Zevit in his book in 2001 on the religion of Israel said... They were votives or prayers in clay. When women wanted to have aid in childbearing or wanted to have uh, 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 protection, they would place this kind of votive, bring it to the temple or, bring it, or, or have it at home as a kind of representation of themselves before God. Now, do you know that that still happens, right, in the Catholic Church? There are votives. Uh, at San Javier Mission near Tucson, Arizona, people used to bring uh, images of the pieces of their body that, were, were, that, that needed medical attention or that needed healing. And they would place these votives of arms and legs and heads in the walls 
of, of the church at San Javier. I saw it this summer when I was in, in Munich, near Munich, um, in Altötting, which is just a few miles away where uh, Pope Benedict, the current pope, was born. And there is a pilgrimage church, a Catholic pilgrimage church, and there is a whole glass case with wax votives that people have hung there, praying for, and there are different limbs, arms and legs and different limbs that need healing and so forth. So those are votives, and they're presented uh, as representations of the actual thing. Uh, Kitchen, Kenneth Kitchen, said they're simply good luck charms. Burn, that they're state-sanctioned, maintaining the population after the demise of Israel. In other words, they encouraged women to have lots of children because Israel had been decimated by the Assyrians that had come through. William Deaver, who will be here on this campus in just a few uh, weeks in November, says that this is in fact the mother goddess, that this is Asherah. And in fact, most others equate this image with Asherah. Why? Let's look at some of the evidence. This is the ours, by the way, that we have in our museum. And uh, you can see she's a very fine specimen. Uh, her face is very, very clear and distinct, and we're very excited to have her. The issue is this, and this is what is so intriguing. When we read the Bible and compare the Bible with what we know from the ancient world, it's intriguing. The majority of these Asherah figurines have not been found in Philistia. They have not been found in Canaan. They have not been found in Phoenicia up in the north. The majority of these figurines have been found in the territory of Judah. Almost a thousand of these clay figurines have been located by archaeologists, and the majority, 96% of them, are from Judah. And you know when they date to? The 8th and 7th centuries B.C., precisely the time when Manasseh placed an Asherah in the temple in Jerusalem. Do you think the people rise above their leader? Normally, the people only rise as high or sink as low as the leader of the country sinks, right? And in this case, we see that uh, being a, a very clear indication. There's another interesting, by the way, here are some of the sites we've talked about. There's a rod. 23 of them were found at a rod. Okay? Beersheba, 43. Talbot Mirsam, 37. Lachish, we just talked about Lachish. 29 of them. And now look at Jerusalem. You see the graph? Over 400 were found in Jerusalem itself. That is, 96% of all the figurines ever found are in Judah, but over half of those, over 400, were found in the capital itself. Was it a problem? Was there a reason why the prophets denounced the worship of Asherah so many times? Was there a reason why the Bible talks about Manasseh placing her in the temple? I think so. And so here we see the distribution of these discoveries. Notice what 2 Kings says again. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. These Asherah figurines differ somewhat. The ones from Jerusalem are slightly styled differently from the ones from Lachish. There's stylistic differences as one moves from city to city. They appear to be locally made. And notice, most of them have been beheaded. 
We only find the heads or the bodies, and many times the bodies are devoid of the arms. Because probably in a reform like the one that Josiah led, where he actually takes the one in the temple, and what does he do? What did we just read a moment ago? He crushes it into powder and scatters the powder over the graves of the common people. They were probably destroyed. And it's fascinating that the majority of the ones that we have found in Jerusalem were found in one location. I didn't like this graph, but I copied this out of somewhere else. The smiley faces are where the Asherah figurines have been found, okay? I would have put frown faces there, but anyway. Um, the majority of the pieces, 477, come from this location right here. These are not complete pieces. These are pieces, individual parts, 477. This is where the temple stood at one point. This is the Haram el-Sharif where the temple mount is today and the Dome of the Rock stands right here in the center, the third most holy site for Islam. This is outside the modern walls of the city or ancient walls of the city and uh, in the area of, of, uh, of the city of David. And there is a cave, Cave 1, and it is in Cave 1 almost as a repository that we find the majority of these images. And I can't help but wonder, as we look at the, at the cave's contents, and particularly the pottery that is found in this cave, I cannot help but wonder if this was where all the ashras that had been gathered in the city by Josiah and by the priests enacting the reform after the book of Deuteronomy was found and after Josiah desired to come back into covenant relationship with God, whether this was not the repository where all these things were placed, away from the people, hidden until modern archaeology has found them 2,500, 600 years later. It's amazing to think. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord, Josiah did, outside Jerusalem to the Brook Kidron and burned it at the Brook Kidron. This is located very close to the Brook Kidron, by the way, that, 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 uh, that cave. And burned it there and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves on the common people. He also broke down the houses of the male and cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord, where the women were weaving hangings for Asherah. Richard Hess, who just published a book on Israelite religions this last year, puts it this way. The apparently intentional breaking of these images and the biblically attested polytheism of Manasseh argue in favor of these images, these Judean figurines, being divine representations. In other words, they weren't simply figurines of women, of themselves, he says they are divine representations of Asherah. We don't know for certain because we don't have the inscription, but the evidence certainly points in that direction. So who is this woman? Is she the goddess Asherah? And if she is, what does that mean for us today? What does it mean for ancient Jerusalem? Was everyone worshiping Asherah? And if they were how did that mix with other things? As we close, I want to mention one more bit of evidence that's intriguing. This evidence comes from another source of detail because when you look at the image, I want to ask you a question. Would you expect to find any images of Yahweh around Jerusalem? I mean, we have some cult stands and we have some 
standing stones that some have interpreted as Yahweh, but none of them say Yahweh on them. Why wouldn't we find images of Yahweh in Jerusalem? You shall not make unto thyself any graven image, right? There's a commandment specifically forbidding that. So if that's the case, could we only be seeing a partial picture? If Yahweh didn't receive any images, and archaeologists can only excavate what materially remains after the fact, right? Then are we only seeing a partial image, perhaps, of what the ancient Israelites were involved with? Where are the Yahweh images? Up to this point in time, not a single one has been found anywhere in Israel. Well, here's another clue. A few years ago, Professor Jeffrey Tigge from the University of Pennsylvania published a small book entitled, Thou Shalt Have No Other Gods, just like the commandment says. And he investigated another bit of evidence that are perhaps not as ostentatious as these figurines we've looked at, but he investigated seals, personal seal impressions of individuals. Hundreds of them have been found in the territory of Jerusalem. In other words, when you signed a document, you didn't sign your name. You took your signet ring and you impressed it on a piece of mud, and those little pieces of mud called bulle have been preserved over time. And we have the names of hundreds of individuals living in Jerusalem during that time. And names back then had meaning. They do today as well, don't they? But they had particular meaning. Many of them, most of them, most Israelite names, had the name God in them in some way. My name is an Israelite name. You know that? Michael. It means who is like God. El, the last part of my name, is God. Barak Yahu. We know him in the Bible as Baruch, the scribe of Jeremiah. Barak Yahu has the name Yahu at the end, and that doesn't refer to some website in our modern culture today or some chocolate drink. That refers to the name Yahweh, which is placed at the end. Blessed of Yahweh is what Barak Yahu means. So names in ancient times had theophoric elements. That's why Daniel's three friends had to have their names changed when they went to Babylon. They could no longer be called Daniel, uh, what, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah anymore because the ayahs at the end of the names are Yahweh. Daniel means God is my judge. Their names had to be changed to good old Babylonian names with Babylonian deities. So Daniel now receives the name Belteshazzar. And Bel is one of the primary Babylonian gods. So he decided, let's go to these ancient seals in Jerusalem. Let's look at the names that are depicted there and find out what mothers and fathers 2,600, 700, 800 years ago were giving their children as names. Let's figure it out. And let's figure it out if they contain the name Baal, Asherah, or any of the other Canaanite gods, or, whether, or Egyptian gods for that matter. Or let's look, let's look at what it is. And this is what he found. 94.1% of, of the names are Yahwistic names. They contain Yahweh as the element in the name, 94%. 5.9% are pagan. During the divided monarchy, even a higher percentage, 96% are Yahwistic. The divided monarchy is the time period that we're talking about here. 4% are pagan. 
And he concludes on page 20, this is a pretty thin book, the onomastic evidence from Israel would mean that the popular private religion was almost exclusively Yahwistic, and with a few exceptions, other deities were worshipped only in state religion when royal policy dictated. Now you look at that and you say, okay, that's another bit of evidence. But can one really make that conclusion on the basis of this evidence? How many of us today give our children Christian names in our society today simply because that's our culture? Does it mean we're living as Christians, actually? You know, Michael is a very popular name. Caleb is a popular biblical name today. My nephew is named Caleb. If any of you have taken Hebrew, are there any Calebs here? <laughs> Don't give your kid the name Caleb. It means dog in Hebrew, okay? It's a very popular name today, but nobody thinks about those things, you know? I didn't have the guts to tell my sister. Don't tell her. Anyway, so um, anyway, we have, we have names with all kinds of different meanings, but we give names often because of, I mean, you go to Ireland today, and you have Catholic names, and you have Protestant names, and uh, you go to other parts of Europe and you have names that continue on from generation to generation. And it's not always because the people are practicing Christians. So we have to be careful with this kind of evidence. But still, it's another bit of evidence that is here. As we look at these ancient bulle, some of them are actual seals. Most of them are seal impressions. We have these names of different individuals. This is the one, by the way, that mentions Barachyahu, son of Neriyahu, the scribe. It is the actual seal of Jeremiah's scribe who wrote the book of Jeremiah, the actual seal. We have two seal impressions. One is in the Israel Museum. It was found in Jerusalem in the Babylonian destruction right at the right time period. The other one is in a private collection in London. As we end, I'll simply share this illustration. A few years ago, as we were putting together our exhibit here at the Lynn H. Wood Archaeological Museum, a student carelessly placed one of our objects in his pocket as he moved from one part of the museum to the other where he was going to put it on display and I saw him do it and I said what are you doing you don't place an ancient object in your pocket you handle it carefully with white gloves and you carefully move it in a box usually from one place to it. Be careful with it. You don't just casually put it in your pocket. Who knows? I was afraid he'd have his keys in there or something, you know. So, uh, so he pulled it out of his pocket and he looked at it and suddenly he just stopped there for a moment. And I said, what's wrong? Is it damaged? <laughs> you know, that's what I thought. He says, no. He says, it's not damaged. He says, I just realized this was something that was worshipped in ancient times. It was the head of a deity that he had in his pocket, by the way. It was worshipped in ancient times, and I just stuck it in my pocket. Isaiah talks about that conundrum in ancient times as well. In chapter 44, verses 16 through 18, he burns half of it in the fire. With his, this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And then the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, 
prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know or understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. What are our gods and goddesses today? How many times we do this? We take the common things of life and we make them our God. We realize in the end of life, in the end of our existence, that they don't mean anything. They cannot understand. They cannot hear. They cannot see. May we make the God of heaven, Yahweh, truly the God of our lives. For he is coming soon, and he is the living God, the one who is the personal God for each one of us. Let's bow our heads for prayer as we close. Lord God, the God of heaven, the only one and true and holy God, the only God in this universe who can hear and who can speak, and when you speak, you can speak galaxies into existence. We thank you that you are a God who not only is from the beginning, who always was and who is and who will be, but that you are the God who is able to be a personal God, one who is very, very personal in our lives today. We pray that you would be with us, that you would go with us from this place. We have been fed this Sabbath and throughout this week. Guide us and may we draw closer to you. May we not make our own images after ourselves and worship them but may we be faithful to you so that when we see you again face to face, you will say, welcome, my faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom that I have prepared for you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.